Hello. At CD Media, we are literally the tip of the spear. From Ukraine to the vaccine to Brazil, we've been at the tip of the spear on all these stories early. So if you want to know what's going on in the world early, before the rest of the news catches up, watch CD Media. But you know what? We have to make money. So we do have ads on the sites. But I know people don't like pop-up ads. They don't like ads. It's a problem. I mean, you get them on your phone, et cetera. If you don't like ads, you can sign up for our no ad subscription, which is a few bucks a month. You get access to all of our sites, not just CD Media, but the Manhattan, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, Armed Forces Press, Tsarism overseas in Eastern Europe, and CDM Espanol if you speak Spanish. So all of these sites are available with no ads. So sign up for our no-ad subscription. You can find it on the websites. There's a pop-up and also in the top menu. And, and pay us a few bucks a month. Support free media. Support your children's future. Support the fight against the corrupt media narrative. Thank you very much. And now let's get to our guest. All right. Well, gentlemen, it's good to be back. It's good to discuss on another podcast of Eurobytes. We are actually, if you will, uh, making this podcast at the anniversary of our first podcast that we made in which we discussed uh, Vladimir Putin and the back then, um, in our opinion, not um, possible war between the Ukraine, the war that shouldn't have, ha shouldn't have happened, the war that we didn't predict would happen, but the war that in the end did happen. A year ago... Um, The world was a different uh, place and the constellations um, from a geostrategic level were still different, from an energy policy level were still different, and from a weapons manufacturing as well as defense spending um, uh, level was different. A year into this Ukraine war, this Ukraine crisis, we are now facing... Um, not only the dangers of a nuclear war, um, which is the worst catastrophe we could think of, but we, we are strongly seeing a left on the Atlantic um, elitist side of the globe. So both sides of the Atlantic in Europe and the United States, you're, you're seeing a left elite that is constantly pushing for more weapons, um, that is constantly adhering to the, um, to the uh, will of, of Vladimir Zelensky. And um, we are sort of flabbergasted by it. So let's start out with the topic of, um, of leopard tanks. Christian, why don't you kick us off? The, um, what, you know, the Ukrainians were pushing for Germany to send leopard tanks. Uh, the Poles especially were making hard pressure on the Germans saying, you guys need to send it. If you don't send it, we will send them, even if you will not give your go. Uh, the Biden administration said, well, um, we're only going to send our Abrams if, or sorry, uh, the, the, the Germans said to the Biden administration, we're only send the leopards if you send the Abrams. So a year ago, you still had old man Biden saying U.S. tanks, Abrams tanks would be World War III. A year ago, we were still talking about sending helmets. I think we'll go into all those topics. But let me ask you this. Let's start out with this question. Are leopard tanks really going to make a big difference, Christian? Well, that very much depends on in terms of the timing and how many and, and such. So obviously, 
Um, I've got a vested chauvinist interest in saying that um, it, it is still one of the most capable tanks in the world, if not the most capable tanks. And case in point, there used to be a NATO competition where tanks would go in simulated combat against one another. And I think it went on for 30 years. And the winner, except um, three times have been German Leopard crews. The other three times it was one Canadian crew with a Leopard, one Dutch crew with a Leopard, and one time I think the Abrams crew, uh, crew. And again, simulated combat isn't combat. So it's a very capable tank. And uh, the Russian reaction towards that shows that it very much um, hits hits a wound spot. So it will definitely outclass Russian tanks in tank-to-tank -tank combat in terms of, I mean, how quickly it's uh, um, the automated weapons control system works. So as a commandant of a Leopard tank, you can essentially mark, whilst your gunner is actually pointing the turrets towards uh, another tank, the commandant of the tank can already point a laser point at another tank so boom boom it's incredibly quickly and it's you know the cannon is stabilized and and everything so it will make a tremendous difference and then now come all the buts first of all when will it happen so will it be in time to um to stem a russian spring offensive or a late winter offensive that everybody seems to be talking about no i don't think so 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 that would be the one thing, the second thing is the German army isn't in the greatest shape itself. It finds it hard to keep all everything serviceable in its own in its in its own inventory in terms of arms. And they only have one type of tank to look after, the Leopard 2 tanks. Now we are in the situation where the Ukrainians are logistically looking after a bunch of post-Soviet era tanks from T-72, T-80, T-90 not uh, whatever, now it's going to be Challenger and Leopard 1, Leopard 2 and uh, the Abrams tank. So I'm like, hmm, I'm, I mean, that's a logistical nightmare at the best of days, even in peacetime. So I'm like, hmm, they're arriving late. You've got the logistic logistical nightmare. And then second, my main point is it's a tank is an offensive weapon. I'm sorry, either way that you spin it. I mean, um, so once that, that conflict started, I'm like, okay, fine. Um, much as, uh, as this war has been, in my opinion, an unnecessarily provoked war. I mean, Henry Kissinger said that much. John Mearsheimer said that much. Um, the person, what was his first name? Cannon of the Cannon Doctrine, uh, when NATO started expanding, very much warned against it. Be that as it may, once Ukraine was attacked, I'm sa I said, look, yes, strictly defensive weapons, no problem. I was skeptical against the delivery of our howitzers, you know, the Panzer Howitzer 2000, which just looks like a tiger tank from World War II. So the optics um, are not good in terms of mobilizing Russians, German tanks in mass numbers in Ukraine. That definitely sets the tone. And I mean, what I'm most worried about, they won't make a difference at becoming spring offensive. I think um, Russia will kind of regain a lot of the territory that it has lost in the last Ukrainian autumn offensive. And I'm like, wow, now we are already in the third round of, or fourth round of escalation of this war. So once they, that Leopard tanks arrive in large enough numbers, that'll be another Ukrainian offensive. And then you've got like German tanks in large numbers going towards the east of Ukraine. And I'm like, you don't need to be a, a 
historical rock star to say that to, to see that there, there's a problem and i think you've hinted at that the biggest driving forces of that deployment in germany are the green party a party that probably 10 years ago had a lot of members who wanted the german army abolished altogether who are suddenly like yes panzerhalvitzers and and such that there's that and then Obviously, the Ukrainians keep pushing. Like first, there was just that artillery thing, the Panzerhaubitzer 2000, and then the Leopard tanks. And now suddenly, oh, it's the planes. And you really wonder. But I, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so probably back to Lucas. What, what would be your thoughts? I think there's so much to unpack here. Yeah, thank you, Christian, for the introduction. Thank you, Fabian, for the introduction. And thanks, Todd, for hosting us. I'd actually break that whole impression of mine down to what the Welt, a German somewhat conservative newspaper, had on its title sheet, yes, like on the front page yesterday. I think I sent that to you, Fabian. And basically went like, um, German trust in Bundeswehr um, is plummeting. So the thing is, we've all been discussing now how Germany has been exporting weapons to Ukraine. Now, keep in mind, some other countries do that as well, obviously, especially Poland. Um, now, just to explain for the American viewership the background of why Germany has been in such an outcast position over the last months, um, the German government uh, reserves the right to actually say either yes or no to any tank that's being sent to a different country. That means um, German arms manufacturer, I think Kauswaffen Wigmann or Rheinmetall produces the uh, Leopard 2 tank. The Polish government buys them. And even if they're being used in Poland at the moment, Poland wants to sell them or ship them to a different country, even if it's a NATO country. The German defense ministry um, has the final work in whether or not this is allowed to happen. And the German government um, was put under severe pressure due to Polish internal politics, especially by the Polish right-wing government that always keeps to, like, always tends to have a bill open with the German government. They're constantly complaining, yeah, Germany needs to pay wartime reparation in the amount of, like, I think, two trillion euros or something. So they, they just try to um, bugger Germany around. Now, the thing is, other countries, coming back to the original argument, other countries such as Poland that plan on sending tanks to Ukraine actually are ready to get American tanks in exchange for that. So I think this is the main reason why the American politics um, or politicians have become so much pushy on this whole issue. It's basically driving the leopards into this fighting area and replacing them with American Abrams tanks. So this is like pure economic interests. I think the Neue Zürcher Zeitung had an argument on this, a Swiss conservative newspaper. Now, why is German trust in Bundeswehr plummeting? Simple reason. The, Ger the German army, the German armed forces, they do not uh, restock any of the things that are being shipped to Ukraine. Christian mentioned this before. They're not getting any surplus stock. The German armed forces are running low on basically everything. They're running low on people who want to join the armed forces. They're running low on ammunition. They're running low on tanks. They're running low on like even basic things such as submachine guns. Like think of the fact how the G36 rifle um, was being put under, how the Yaris manufacturer and developer were put under pressure um, by the German public. So what I want to say is what we are shipping to Ukraine is stuff that's lacking 
in German barracks afterwards. That's lacking in German tank garages. So by arming Ukraine, Germany is actively disarming itself. And the German industry um, does not get any requests from the German armed forces to actually restock the tanks. Like Norway recently announced they wanted to buy, I think, 50 or 60 Leopard 2 tanks. But the Bundeswehr does not, they don't buy new tanks because for them to buy new tanks, they would need... Um, they would need a formal order that I think had to be issued by the German parliament, not like not by the defense ministry. And now look at the German government, look at the majority that's happened, that's formed in the German legislative, in the Bundestag. They're not interested in having tanks in Germany to defend Germany, full stop. So what, where is this hundred billion going that they allegedly allocated? <laughs> uh, I think they're spreading the one hundred billion over like five years or so. But Fabian probably knows more because he's more. Um, I think. So are, are you saying that more about the number? The German government does not want to arm itself. Is that essentially what you're saying? Exactly. Yes. Well, so called. Yes and no. I think the um, obviously the political decision was made. And um, they are going to follow up on it, but the bureaucratic monster behind um, anything that has to do with ordering, reordering weapons, stocking up, rearming, uh, is, is, is such an absolute catastrophic disaster. Uh, and this topic is not new. I mean, um, Germany has increased its defense budget since now EU uh, Commissioner President von der Leyen was still... Um, German defense secretary, she had already increased um, defense spending, but she spent most of her money on McKinsey, um, <laughs> you know, advising uh, the German Bundeswehr on how to spend its money correctly. And it was total waste. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so I would say th the problem is still there's this incredible lack of political will. And I will agree with this criticism, um, but I do want to ask Todd, I want to ask you a question, but let me start out with this. There's um, there was an op-ed in the in the Wall Street Journal, which basically says that Olaf Scholz, Chancellor Scholz's leadership, is lacking, and Germany is a very uh, unreliable ally. Now, um, all the criticism that goes into the fact that um, the the German government is not doing a good job of rearming, of building up its military, of what, doing what's necessary within the NATO ally structure is one thing. But let me ask you about this. When I, I was in the States in December and in January, and I've talked to a lot of people, especially in the Midwest, um, some of these people had kids in the military. Nobody was gung-ho on this war. Nobody was saying, oh yeah, we need to defend our freedom in the Donbass. Um, I, I've heard you say something similar. The, the only place where I saw, you know, in this incredible amount of, of Ukraine support was in some elitist suburbs of Washington. I would joke when I was in Alexandria that every house that had a Ukraine flag was probably of an employee of either the State Department or the Pentagon so that they could show, you know, their boss that they're showing so much support. It's like in office space, the guy that has all these pieces of flair. He's showing his boss it's, he really it's, cares. It's, it's virtue signaling on steroids. Exactly. So my <laughs> question to you is, isn't it actually better to have an ally that is sort of reluctant and not gung-ho? Because, look, if Germany was gung-ho on this war, I think it would be an all-out war. So I would like to have your opinion on that or sort of from the American perspective, because 
Yeah. I don't see it. I actually don't see Germany being sort of reluctant as a bad thing. I, the way they manage its military is one thing, but the strategic aspect is another. I completely agree. And and yes, I'm. Uh, you're right. The only place that uh, there's gung ho for this Ukraine war is inside the Beltway of Washington D.C. and maybe some, you know, uh, McKinsey and a few liberal college Ivy League schools. But the so I see the war is is completely orchestrated to take our eye off something else while we have spy balloons flying over our nuclear sites. But so I mean, so that is uh, my point from a large scale standpoint. But yes, uh, I'm very glad that Europe is not jumping into this war. However, what is happening is America is having to do that or, or being forced to do that by our illegitimate administration. So that is the problem I have. I, you know, Germany defending itself is one thing, but, and, and I would say if, if this is so important, you know, why isn't Germany included? So that is the question we asked the Bidens. Why, why isn't Europe stepping up if this is such a, an important conflict? I don't think it is an important conflict. I think the, it's not existential to the United States. They can't even take Donbass. You know, the Russian, this is not the Soviet army of millions of mechanized troops. This is a collapsed army that is trying to rebuild where its economy is struggling. And NATO is not threatened. I don't even think Poland is threatened, maybe 10 years from now. But, you know, you have an alliance. That's what NATO is for. So defend yourself. You know, I mean, don't start another war and use American forces as proxies to, 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 to you know, save whatever historical vendettas you have. Um, this is my problem with what's going on. And... I want this to stop. Yes, a lot of American families have children that are, you know, active duty or reserves or whatever. And um, my question is, why is this being orchestrated? I think that is the main question that needs to be answered. And I have thoughts or ideas or guesses. And I think it is to really destabilize the West, leave us exposed and destroy the American uh, system even further, but I, I enjoy your thoughts as to why this is obviously this is being orchestrated, right? So why is it being orchestrated? I mean, I can probably start to kick it off, and I mean, I think there there are plenty of ways mm -hmm. to skin the cat or peel the onion, and I think it's got so many layers this conflict, and probably some things are working hand in glove even without you know conscious coordination. So. Um, I would like to direct my view just, just on two actors and who've got absolutely nothing to do with each other, who actually would despise each other. And then Lucas and Fabian, you can chime in um, in terms of the dynamics, it's like this weird, um, weird, unorchestrated, uh, weird, unorchestrated slash orchestrated network that, that comes into being. I'm pointing out two actors. So, I mean, Lest we forget is the United Kingdom <laughs> as America's poodle in Europe. So Boris Johnson, like after the conflict started and probably something I must lie, is it four weeks in maximum four weeks, maybe six weeks into the conflict? It turned out that um, Russia couldn't pull off the blitz and shock and awe against Kiev that was originally envisaged. And so at that phase, once it seems secure, Boris Johnson flies over to Kiev, posts with President Zelensky uh, in front of the cameras. And what, what seemed to transpire 
that Zelensky was willing to talk um, peace with Russia. Okay, look, look, guys, let's take the whole NATO thing off the table and let's de declare a ceasefire. We've shown you guys it's going to be a bit more bloody than you thought it was going to be, but obviously we have no position to win this. And apparently Boris Johnson, and I mean, that has been highlighted time and again, even the uh, one very war critical member of the German Communist Party, Sarah Wagenknecht, pointed out that much. The peace deal was almost in the bag, but Johnson um, instruct, said, no, 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 we can actually win this. I mean, never quite defined how the winning looked like, which is going to be my criticism of the current war. Nobody quite knows how victory should look like. Um, so there's Boris Johnson. Obviously, he had a lot of internal um, problems to distract from. And at the same time, I don't know this complex of wanting to appear like a Churchillian figure. So that's probably a very human side of politics. And God knows what about he discussed with his American allies. I don't think Johnson would have flown to Kiev on his own accord. So there's Johnson and then there's the German Green Party. And for the German Green Party, suddenly a lot of things that are happening, it hated the military, it hated nationalism, and suddenly it cheers on Ukraine and bravery and wants more tanks. And the interesting thing is certainly for the, Ger for the German and European far left, uh, or this sort of woke left, Russia stands for a lot of things they hate. It's, it's, it's a majority white country. It is um, still, one could say, a pretty masculine culture. Um, and so it, it makes for a very good enemy. And they, they I mean, you know, we, we all saw the last foot, uh, soccer World Cup, all the virtue signaling. And obviously, Russia doesn't stand for the same kind of values that were espoused by many of the European soccer teams that got eliminated quite, quite early. So they make a convenient enemy. And so like, well, weakening Russia seems, means weakening that culture. So it makes for brilliant, um, brilliant scapegoat. And at the same time, I mean, warfare, war has always been the welfare of the state. So I mean, the amount of money made now by Rheinmetall and God knows what other producers, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, <laughs> General Dynamics, uh, is considerable. So, so th those would be my three angles, very, very human side of thing of a politician like Boris Johnson needing distraction and wanting his Churchillian moment. The German and European woke that have uh, the kind of enemy that they need. And, you know, um, and I've got other suspects, but Fabian Lucas, I'm passing the ball on to you because I think they might not necessarily all in cahoots with one another. It might be one of these ad hoc alliances that just sometimes. Pan let, out let me throw way. something in there real quick in that what you just said about the war machine and being the, you know, the province of governments is exactly what is being talked about now is that the vaccines are such a problem. The economy, the central bank issues, all of it is collapsing. And so the elites have decided to have a war in order to solve all those problems, make them all go away. So on to the next. So I don't know who you wanted next. Pass enough to you, Fabian. Okay. Um, I think um, one thing that, that, keeps getting to my mind is, is, is really the theory that John Mearsheimer has pushed. That's the NATO expansion theory that uh, ever since the 1990s, um, you've had people uh, back then in the Clinton administration, and I've said this in this podcast before, the Clinton administration made two major decisions that have influenced the world of today. Very bad decisions. Number one, NATO expansion. 
And number two, um, getting China into the WTO and basically releasing a monster in that economic sense. Now, um, NATO expansion um, um, was, of course, truth, truth to this is also that uh, the Eastern European countries, especially Poland, was pushing very hard on this. Um, Poland was never very comfortable with the idea of being sort of in an alliance structure with Germany, where Germany receives, um, you know, the majority of its energy from Russia, whereas the, um, whereas the, uh, the United States sort of had to take care of Germany's security as well as Europe's security. So there's that ambivalent structure in within the whole system. Um, and um, of course, I, I do think there are people in especially the State Department that said this is this is um, this is a very bad thing. We can't have Germany and Russia doing sort of, a um, you know, an, an economic bromance while at the same time we're protecting them from each other or them from them keep keep ones down keep the others out right the old nato thing keep the russians out keep the germans down keep the americans in um and um i will i will agree to a certain extent that it was that it was strategically stupid of germany to completely put all eggs in one basket and to rely completely on russia nonetheless what are we talking about here todd you mentioned it we're talking about Russia, a country that is in decline. Our very first podcast here, we already said, here's a nation that probably has, what, eight years left to repair itself before it's completely done. We're facing a nation that is struggling to survive as a nation itself. We're facing a nation that, you know, has forces within its own country, like the Chechens, that are absolutely not Russian. I mean, I mean, look at these guys. I mean, they're, they're Islamic extremists to some certain extent. And they don't want to be part of Russia. And but they don't want to be part of Russia. But, want to be independent. but Putin has sort of this, this deal with his proxy warrior, they call him his, his, his poodle, um, Ramzan Kadyrov. And then you have, um, so, so you have a very sick nation when it comes to health. Uh, you have a very, uh, you don't have a very rich nation and you have a military that can't even take Ukraine. Again, you're completely right. This is not the Soviet Union. So what are we talking about? The same thing with Germany. I mean, let's face the truth with all economic um, vibrancy, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like, you know, we're a rising superpower. Um, quite the contrary. I mean, we've had this discussion about the EU. Well, is the EU a superpower? Well, there may be some potential to that. But even if it were, my God, what a what a uh, what an awful superpower to have so many um, discrepancies within. Like you have the Poles that don't want the Germans to have this, and then you have the British, then you have the French, and everyone's working in their own in interests. So I boil it down to the fact that. On the, the one hand, you have the State Department and people back in the 90s already saying we need to expand NATO, we need to expand NATO. You have the Ukraine, um, sorry, the um, the 2008 Bucharest NATO summit saying Ukraine's going to be part of NATO. Putin is, is scared out of his mind saying, well, this is going to be directly on my border. Um, and at the same time, you have especially the Germans, which Angela Merkel at the time, 2008, she was against it. But the structure of the system basically forced her 
to back down and say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll agree to this. Um, we'll agree to this uh, decision that Ukraine at some point shall join NATO because she obviously knew she didn't have the political power or the will to rearm Germany to the point that it could say, well, bye bye, America. We don't want you, you know, to protect us anymore. We can take care of ourselves, take care of it ourselves. So at that time, the Europeans, especially the Germans, are um, they're they're basically Stepford wives to the State Department and the Pentagon. I mean, so there's this interlocking of the elites that just agree to do what what their ideological um, heart tells them to do. And I think that's one of the biggest problems. And again, we are facing a bigger threat in the rise of China. And apparently people, even in the States, like Kevin McCarthy, you know, who wears a Ukraine flag and a Ukraine patch or whatever, and, and people in Congress, I mean, constantly, I always read in the news, the United States is now sending $2.2 billion to Ukraine and all of, all of the support. I don't see the American people on board. I don't see the Germans on board of this war. I don't see a lot of people, but I see the elitist structures that have led to this. And that's my explanation. It's, it's, it, we're, we're sliding into this um, because apparently people um, in Brussels and in Washington still think in, the terms of the, in terms of the Cold War. And they don't see the real enemy ahead. Do you, think it's that, do you think it's that naive or do you... I see it as more sinister and nefarious and diabolical. I mean, I, it could be that these people are just, uh, just like you say, just, you know, living in the past. I see this as an intentional attack on Western civilization as a way to you know, bend our arms. Um, and, and yes, Russia is a great boogeyman because they don't, you know, allow right. the, uh, you know, the tranny stuff. Um, and so, yes, they get that added benefit, but I see this as a way to further the, you know, massive immigration into Western Europe and the U.S. and right. just a larger, bigger agenda. Well, Todd, uh, I, would, I would argue just quickly before, Lucas, um, yeah. I, I would argue that, and I think we've talked about this a lot, I see people who work in these ministries in the bureaucratic institutions in the departments whether it's in the pentagon or whether it's in the state department or whether it's in brussels or any uh you know institutional organizations i see a lot of these people being very dull in their thinking whereas there's a huge difference between the um sort of the elitist bubble that you have when when you're talking about i don't know the new york times when you're talking about people that go to davos when you're talking about uh, people that ha that are sitting in non-governmental power organizations, whereas the people who actually work in the decision-making fields, I see them as being, yeah, like I said, I don't see them as being sinister. I see them as th they actually think what they're doing is moral. Yeah, they believe they're saving the world, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right, look, see, this is exactly what I wanted to point out. Um, now, Todd, um, just as a short notice on how the situation is in Germany, I do see what you mean with um, the argument that the whole Ukraine conflict is weakening the West, or is basically bringing in more migrants, etc. Now, at the same time, the interesting thing to notice is that 
Germany for the first time in roughly 10 years, like AFD party is celebrating their 10 year anniversary this weekend somewhere in Hesse, I think. And AFD has never been that this strong as they are today. The whole migration topic of 2015 did not give them so much interest, did not give them so many potential voters as the whole Ukraine thing now does. So I would actually disagree with there being a master plan that's, that has been forged to actually weaken the West. The European view of the whole thing is basically, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, especially Christian Fabian on your take on how the, um, how the European take on this is, more and more people actually do say that these are American interests that are being defended in Ukraine. Like whether them being um, American government interests or in general, American industry interests. Like we all know the whole Burisma story of uh, Hunter Biden, et cetera. But take a, like, let's leave this all apart. Let's ignore the fact that the Biden administration um, might have some personal interest in this whole thing. The U.S. military, the U.S. Uh, like as President Eisenhower used to refer to it as the military-industrial complex, they have major interest in Germany sending tanks to Ukraine. They have interest in countries pledging their tanks for Ukraine because afterwards, American tanks are being are replacing German tanks. The American industry has great interest in American shells being fired in Ukraine, because after all, these shells need to be bought. Nothing's being gifted here. Ukraine pays for these things with money that they're being given from Germany, for example. They're being given from Europe. Now, the Americans constantly point out that Europe needs to um, amp up their military aid. But if you take a look at what's the um, pure mon monetary aid, Europe is number one in that. And what's being bought with this money? Obviously, it's American stuff. So I would actually argue that there's not, no one's trying to weaken the West here. I think Europe is being weakened, and Europe is being weakened, especially by American interests here. I, I think there's a, uh, a, and I can see exactly what you're saying. Um, but if you look at the point where, you know, the Secretary of the Navy of the United States, few weeks ago just said if this war continues we'll will not be able to defend ourselves because we have expended all of our stores 25 percent of the javelin missiles are gone they take a long time to rebuild you know we have i see this as a collection of powers around the world fighting for control and power in the future china is one of those someone at the world economic forum is one of those and the you know the Biden crime family or whoever is working for them in China, you know they're sending balloons of our nuclear sites and and we're not doing anything. So I am as an American, I'm worried about the future. Are they going to take Hawaii? Are they going to take Guam while we're in Ukraine? That is what really bothers me. Um, and they are very the Chechens do not want to be part of Russia. So I see China as actually probably looking to swallow parts of Russia too. I see them as the big uh, kahuna in the room. I see Russia at serious risk of breaking up as I, a result of all this. I, I would very much agree with that, and that's why I'm so worried. I mean, I, I sort of sit in between what Fabian and Lucas expressed and what you expressed, so I do think there is this delicate interplay which doesn't necessarily require uh, nefarious coordination. It's what Curtis Yavin called the cathedral. 
At the same time, that is not to say that there are parts in government or outside government that they do have nefarious plans and actually can can very much um, use um, that agenda. I mean, for me, one really interesting bit. That, so pr probably this sea change that we have observed, but definitely something was at play, um, was German sovereignty. So I mean, for me, for us, Chancellor Scholz is not necessarily the nine, the no guy. He's just like, eh, not yet, not yet. But eventually he he, he, he crumbles. Um, so he, he was very hesitant. And I think generally hesitant to first supply weapons at all. But, ah, OK, fine. Uh, deliver the Panzer Haubitze 2000. Then it's like, ah, dang, ah, OK, fine. Uh, and, and it all happens. But then the really interesting thing, and Lucas hinted that at the beginning of the video, and probably that, that for many viewers and I think the use are superbly well informed, but just to repeat the point, there was one thing. Obviously, there are different interests here that collide. Obviously, the smaller Eastern European states, just as Russia is very afraid of Western armies coming into Ukraine historically, all the smaller Eastern European states are deadly afraid from their history, rightfully afraid of being absorbed into the Russian Empire, be that Poland, be that the Baltic states, be that the Romania, you know. So, so they're afraid and they want Russia weakened too. And quite often you get you you might get that effect of the um, the tail wagging the dog. So I, I do understand why the Polish are more gung-ho and delivering weapons than, than we are. So I mean that's sort of the history. And I think one thing that was always feared geopolitically was German industry and Russian raw materials. Fabian, you hinted that. Lucas, you hinted at the um, North North Stream, uh, was it three? pipeline, not Stream 2 pipeline. And so just for give viewers an impression, the pipelines of gas, natural gas, that Germany grew more and more dependent on under its Chancellor Schroeder, ran via Ukraine through Poland to Germany. And the Polish and most of the, and, and the Ukrainians certainly would have liked it to stay that way because they said, well, if Russia ever decides to to blackmail us and turn the gas off to us, no gas is going to Germany, meaning they're going to lose out a, a lot of money. So they can't really divide us. So you, you really need, would need to decide to cut Germany off and lose all your income. But they said, well, now that Germany and Russia built that pipeline that went directly through the Baltic Sea to Germany, that security mechanism, as the Polish and the Ukrainians probably rightfully thought, has been bypassed. And then what then happened? Uh, and again, bearing in mind, probably geopolitically, again, this, this scary thing of German industry, Russian, uh, Russian raw materials, in a way, had become true through the Nord Stream. Now, the Nord Stream pipeline exploded. And I mean, it's very much up for debate who did it. I mean, I see a couple of powers benefiting from it, and I don't think it's Russia. They would, you know, why would they? Um, and to me, that was the interesting thing in how many ways Germany is less of a sovereign country than we thought. It ultimately always seems to crumble and move against its own interests. And I mean, Fabian, you hinted, and I, I do think there's more than an element of truth. This war is not really in Europe's interests. Um, it's probably more in sort of some US, and I'm throwing it out there provocatively, and Todd, please push back. It's more in some sort of US neocon 
a neo-lib kind of interest to weaken Russia at all costs. But for the for the Europeans, I mean, Germany, well, minus maybe the Eastern Europeans who wanted Russia weakened, but even then, Germany loses out big time. Our industry uh, loses competitiveness as our energy prices shoot up. Um, a whole market of products being sold to, to Russia has just evaporated. Um, all the fighting is much, much closer to us than, than it is, it is to, to the US. So, I mean, it is an interesting war where you do have the European elites in Brussels and some anti-Russian interests from the sort of the woke left aligning. Then, yes, the Eastern, some Eastern European states rather would want to see Russia weakened just out of historical interest. But ultimately, it seems to be a neo US neolib, neocon war fought on European soil that doesn't really benefit Europe where most of the costs stick with us. But... Where, where the Green Party uh, and our foreign secretary, Annalena Baerbock, is officially or in front of the EU declared war on Russia. I mean, you think about this. I mean, this woman stumbles with her. I mean, she's she's like she's like the bumbling Biden of the. <laughs> of Germany. This woman will say some things where you're just like, what did she just say? And the most recent thing is that we're at war with Russia. Now, obviously, that plays into the hands of the of the Russian propaganda machine. But look, um, you guys have said it. You've put it to the point, Christian, um, especially that 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 uh, German capital with Russian resources. I mean, this goes back to the Mackinder um, uh, Halford Mackinder uh, theory of Eurasia, if you control, if Germany and Russia um, are um, in an alliance, they will control the Eurasian continent. Therefore, that is a, a world power. But and then, Todd, you have pointed it out, obviously, that the main benefiter of all of this is China. So this is sort of like what we're facing here is somewhat of a similarity to World War One. You have this conflict within in, in World War One, you had especially monarchic monarchic structures that fought each other, not realizing the enemy that was looming at the gates, which was basically, um, you know, communism, secularism, et cetera, et cetera. Look at all the problems that the result of World War One caused. Mm -hmm. uh, it, uh, and, and, and so what we're now facing is we're facing the West again poised for another civil war. Um, destroying itself and the winner in all of this will be China because I obviously look if, if if Russia let's say Russia wins this thing they're still not going to be a a superpower but um, the, the the State Department sure will be embarrassed and and a lot of other people will be embarrassed and Europe will look incredibly weak so everyone's in in this thing to win it and I don't see an exit strategy and I actually also don't see anybody who is strategically minded I mean look I am not a Henry Kissinger fan whatsoever. Let me make that point clear. Nonetheless, I do think the guy has some brilliant statecraft, especially during the Nixon administration, who, by the way, Nixon, one of the most sophisticated presidents who ever was in the office. I'm just going to say it for the record here. I think Richard Nixon was a was a brilliant man. I think he made a lot of mistakes with his with his the personal... second the second president removed by the CIA. <laughs> yeah, well, we can talk about that in another podcast. But th the point I just want to make was look at the brilliance of Nixon going to China at that time being the weaker um, part, the weaker state in this communist scheme of between the Soviet Union and Russia. 
Soviet Union and China. Um, at that time, the Soviet Union was the, the stronger power. Um, so what they did was they played these potential enemies against each other and th that were sort of allied in the sense that they were communists. Well, now we're facing the same problem. We're facing an alliance again of Russia and China, this time Russia being the weaker part, but allying itself being the lapdog of China within organizations like the Shanghai Corporation Organization, etc. But Todd, I agree with you. I mean, Sam Huntington pointed this out in the 90s. He said, who's to say that China is not going to swallow Mongolia and go even further into parts of Siberia? Who's well, they, to say already have, they already have parts of Siberia that they have leased for 100 years. Um, right. So that so, land's not coming back. Yeah. Exactly. So why wouldn't it be in, in, in Russia's interests uh, or sorry, in, in, in the West's interest, in, in American interest, et cetera, to forge sort of a strategic alliance, and you could call it the Northern Global Hemisphere Alliance, I don't know, the OSZE or whatever, but you have, I mean, Lucas, you remember when we were in Munich at the Munich Security Conference, and there was a famous U.S. general who was in charge of the U.S. Army here in Europe, and he is now all gung-ho in Ukraine, right? But at that time, I remember, quote, Oh, I want Russia on our side against the Chinese. So, I agree. you know what I mean? I mean, I'll why? tell you the answer to that because these people that are running our country illegitimately do not care about American interests. People have to realize that these people are not even for Western civilization. I don't know who they are, what they are, but it is obvious to me that Biden is being controlled by someone else. And the only answer to this, you talk about escape avenues is Trump coming back in the White House and solving this within a few period, few days, making a deal, you know, a peace treaty, a ceasefire, and then focus on the real enemy, which is China. So this is what needs to happen, in my opinion. The rest is all theater. This, this government is not legitimate. It is working for the World Economic Forum and not the American people. Well, opinion. 2024 is going to be a roller coaster. That's all I have to say. Mm -hmm. Probably... So we've, we've been like <coughs> gone gone down quite a pessimist route. I would like to, and I'm gonna play the ball in Lucas's park, um, in a second. So, in terms of some, like looking out, who are the saner characters here? And I'm gonna make the argument: the sanest character in Europe is, well, given that most of it is in Europe, Turkey, which has been the only pragmatic player and probably done untold good from a humanitarian perspective. So yeah, doesn't make me an Erdogan fan, not by a long shot, but I'd like to point out like saner policies or kind of um, pragmatic where he seems to be able to, um, to play both sides, but everybody benefits. And he seems to understand that like a full on escalation is not really in his interest. And um, Coming, I mean, Christian, he's, he's, he is now doing that. He's becoming the Bismarck on the Bosporus. Bismarck on. <laughs> in a way, <laughs> in a way. And, but so there's one interesting thing, and I'm, I'm hopefully, Lucas, so the traditional neutral European power is obviously the neutral European power, Switzerland. And but even there, sea change has happened over the last couple of days in Austria. Lucas, could you talk us through, since you're from that region, so I'm just going to play the ball to you. On that, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, Switzerland and Austria, how are they faring in this conflict, and what happened in Switzerland, which which is you kind of see the Alpine it. view on that. Well, yes, so please. the Alpine view, the view on that from is the that, um, 
Yeah, Switzerland was really reluctant on shipping even ammunition over to Ukraine. So the same thing that Germany has for their big arms, um, Switzerland apparently even has for like tank ammunition. And it, it really took a lot of pressure, I think, onto Switzerland for them to even allow the early con manufactured um, like tank, what do you call them? Um, like individual tank um, ammunition pieces to be shipped um, to Ukraine. So I wouldn't say that Switzerland really changed their mind. I think they, they've been put under real severe pressure. Like I see that um, in the whole financial sector, um, Switzerland really has been put under severe pressure over the last years by the EU. Keep in mind that the Swiss people um, have decided to go on a different stance regarding migration, regarding um, like, especially regarding sending people back to their home countries, et cetera, and Europe or the EU keeps on punishing them with like um, threatening to um, threatening to cancel certain bilateral agreements um, based on which the Swiss have an easier time accessing the European market, et cetera. So I wouldn't really see Switzerland as any uh, malevolent actor here. I think they just try to keep their neutrality actually and keep in mind for how long switzerland has refused to actually um act on known russian oligarch bank accounts so regarding austria the whole thing's actually even more fun because the last western politician who visited vladimir putin is still your austrian chancellor karl nehammer who i think in march or april so by by the time the whole mariupol um shelling already took place um, Austrian Chancellor Nehammer actually took to Russia and was talking to Vladimir Putin to discuss whether or not um, he should move out of Ukraine. So Austria really has no interest on either side. And the, the only advantage Austria has is that our armed forces are like in such bad shape that no one literally were to, no one ever were to ask us whether we wanted to chime in with tanks as well. Like, Austria used to have around about um, 250 to 300 Leopard 1 tanks. I think now Austria has three tank companies. Uh, so that means like roughly 40 to 50 tanks overall. So there's like no space for Austrian donations, concessions, wartime efforts whatsoever. So the like keep in mind, especially for the American viewer and listenership, um, the decision to send tanks to Ukraine is not one where most Germans are like supportive of. It's roughly a 50-50 choice. And Austria, with a more pro-Russian stance, um, is not really on the Ukrainian side, I'd say. So um, the official Austrian politics, like the Volkspartei, the Conservative Party, the party of the Chancellor, they obviously support Ukraine, but um, they are only number three in the, in the polls nowadays. Number one in the polls for the last months has been the Freedom Party, the right-wing party that traditionally has had a really good connection towards Russia. And you might remember back in the last government when um, the Austrian Secretary of State was Ms. Karin Kneissel, um, for her wedding, even Vladimir Putin appeared and like she bowed down in front of Vladimir Putin saying, thank you for attending my wedding. That should tell you a lot about Austrian politics. I think we're coming up against the hour. So maybe if all of us want to sort of say I want to chime in one of... more. Yeah. yeah. I want to say one more thing. You mentioned that the 
how people used to call him the based watermelon salesman, you know, um, Recep Erdogan. Now, I think Erdogan's not the only person who's sane here. The other person that is really sane, and I say that someone who's not a social democrat, is Olaf Scholz. Olaf Scholz has been reluctant on sending tanks for so long, not because Olaf Scholz was against doing any of these things, but because Olaf Scholz does not want Germany to be dragged into this whole thing more than they really have to, based on international, like based on backdoor agreements, etc. So I think Scholz is really trying his best to keep or to steer Germany out of this whole thing. Okay, I think, um, yeah, and that leads us over to the part where all of us have the um, sort of parting thoughts. And I think, yeah, if we could all keep so yeah, keep it keep it brief and some things that, that come to mind and that we might revisit in upcoming episodes. Probably back to you, Todd, and then just uh, yeah, sure. Uh, across on myself. This war needs to stop. It needs to be ended. I'm hopeful the house will reduce funding, if not zero it out altogether. Uh, so that is a battle to be fought over the next few weeks, although there is a lot of support in Congress for this war. There's a growing contingent that wants to stop it. So we'll see what happens. And, um, uh, you know, because they want a much larger conflict. So um, we have to put pressure on politically and on both sides of the Atlantic to stop what's going on, in my opinion. Yeah, I'll continue there. Um, I want to pick it up right there. Um, I completely agree with Todd. I think that the interesting thing is that we on the conservative spectrum of the political uh, um, scheme of things have witnessed that the, the left is now more and more the war party, whereas the right continues to, to increase in being the anti-war party. In, in other words, um, I remember, you know, uh, 20 years ago, um, the 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 war in Iraq was 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 a Bush Republican thing. Now, uh, if you if you look at more or less the Republican side, you look at people who are against the war. So I think there's an interesting shift that has taken place. That's the one thing. The other thing is absolutely this war has to stop. Um, and I do in, think that in some parts it is in the hands of 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 the American voter, because as long as there is no shift on Capitol Hill and um, in the White House, I think this war is going to drag on um, for at least another two and it, years. Let me just say, it's not the voter, it's the citizen, because the voting system is rigged. So we have to change that via citizen power. But well, let's, yeah, it's, it's, it's in the hand yeah. of, of, the, of the decent American people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's in, the, it's in the hands of those people that say enough is enough. Mm -hmm. Um but there's going to be there's going to have to be a a shift altogether. It can't just be one man. I mean, look, um, I think Todd, you once said it too. That quote: "Superman isn't coming." You can't have one guy do it all. There's going to have to be an alliance, a structure of people that said, "We don't want this." Um, and um, in, in the end, it's going to benefit no one. And it's not in Europe's interest to keep this going, and it's not in 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 the American people's interest to keep this going. Um, last but not least, I, I do think one good thing that is happening is the fact that reality 
has struck the most idealistic country in Europe, and that's obviously Germany. We were living in um, what we call in German Wolkenkuckucksheim, Cloud Cuckoo's home. You know, we were living in a fairy tale land. We were selling our products to China. We were buying cheap gas from Russia, and we were relying on American protection from it. And this show couldn't go on for long. And uh, I knew that long ago, some people did as well. And especially those that could do something about it were sleeping because it was very comfortable. But it's important that we return back to Realpolitik. And that means that we're going to have to rearm, not to fight a war, but to be sovereign. And I think that is a good thing. So that question's back on the table. Um, all other developments will have to wait. But again, I think this is going to be a, a long war and generals like German General, Br Brigadier General Eric Fad or uh, General Douglas McGregor, who said this war would be over in like three days, were completely wrong. And I think um, it is going to drag on. So that that is my end note for today. Lucas? Yeah, well, you know, back in 1972, when the Israeli... Um, sports team was kidnapped by the Palestinians during the Munich Olympics. Avery Brundage from the International Olympic Committee stood up and shouted, the games must go on. Now, these games for sure do not need to go on because there's literally no one who's winning. There's, as Fabian Christian said, no people in the world actually profit from this. There might be a small group of people who actually do profit from this, but it's in no country's interest for this war to go on. It's no, no government's interest for this to go on. So I think based on this, Europe taking a stance of like de-escalation is a good deal. And Olaf Scholz doing what he does, trying to slow down this, um, I don't want to call it a behemoth, but trying to to stop the or not, not to stop, to just slow down this movement of throwing more and more arms at Ukraine is a good thing. So even though for me, as someone who's not a German, I couldn't even vote for Olaf Scholz and I definitely would not have voted for Olaf Scholz. <laughs> but I do have to say, I think he hasn't been the worst choice of the people. Cool. Um, well, and I sneakily got myself the last word. So I probably would want to point out one thing. I mean, Todd, he did point out like some elements who are tirelessly being a force not for good and they're rather remaining in the shadows. Now, I would point out probably one interesting thing I heard uh, in a connoisseur of the American State Department. And he said the interesting thing about the department responsible for China was it traditionally consisted of people who liked China and spoke Chinese, typically Jesuits who went there. And they always liked China. They liked Chinese culture, whereas the State Department um, the Russian side of things was staffed with people who really hated Russia. And I'm always saying never underestimate the, the prevailing culture of departments and, and or ministries. Take, take that a little deeper, Christian. Why? What's the main difference? One is Christian, one's not. Well, I mean, that, that, might, be, that might be one reason or, or the other. It's just mm -hmm. like dif different, different people that came there. Like, I mean, the mm -hmm. State Department used to be staffed a lot of with Eastern European refugees but be that as it may that these kind of things do greatly matter what, whatever the reason so that would be one thing and Fabian you pointed sovereignty and I think it has been one of the main casualties of this war and we've got this weird feeling like who drives us forward 
who really holds the power. And it's this weird mishmash where we all dragged into a war. And I mean, Neil Ferguson spoke about sleepwalking into a war at the eve of World War One. And I hope we are not there. And obviously, 2024 <laughs> matters. So um, let's hope all for a benign um, outcome and, and a lot more luck than all our politicians um, deserve by, by their reckless actions. And um, let's see, we, we, we abstain from predictions today <laughs> wisely after a year ago, we were way off. And uh, well, thank you everybody for tuning in and well, hopefully see you soon.